Hello and welcome to the Manda Hadley podcast. This podcast is all about cohabitation and second marriages. And with more than a third of marriages ending in divorce, um, there can be no surprise that more and more people are marrying for a second time or embarking on a cohabiting relationship after their divorce. The impact of these second marriages and cohabiting relationships on money and finances can be surprisingly complicated and incredibly difficult to navigate with a range of different rules applying in different circumstances. So to discuss the different considerations involved, I'm joined today by Peter Burden, Head of the Family Department here at Manda Hadley Solicitors, um, and Peter's based in our Kenilworth office. So Peter, let's just start things off. Um, I know one of the um, perhaps myths around cohabitation is this word common law. So is there such a thing as a common law husband and wife? Hello, um, this is a frequently asked question and the simple answer is no, uh, this is a myth. Cohabitation is a term used to describe a couple who live together. Uh, these relationships do not have the same recognition in law as a married couple. And it can be a common misunderstanding that a couple will have, have established a common law marriage after being together for a period of time. Uh, this is not the case, however. Moving in together is a happy experience and often practicalities such as whose name the property is in and mortgage payments are glossed over until later on and very often when it's too late. An example of this would be a couple purchasing a property in, in the one person's name where the agreement is that one party would pay the mortgage and the other party would pay for food and bills. The couple then separate after 20 years and when a discussion takes place about what should happen to the house, the party whose name is not on the title deeds may have no entitlement to the property as their name is not on the deeds and they may have to show that, for example, it was intended by both parties that she or he has an entitlement. This may be difficult to prove in practice. In this example, this partner may have fallen into the so-called living together trap as there has not been a formal agreement drawn up to regulate her or his rights. When a living together relationship ends, ownership of a house is decided by property law rather than divided by the courts, as it is with divorcing couples. So if your name is not on the title deeds, legally you may not be entitled to anything. Therefore, if anyone is considering living together, they should seriously consider having a cohabitation agreement drawn up to clearly set out each other's rights. Okay, so what are the options when it comes to cohabitation? Mm -hmm couples in order for their uh, in order for them to protect their financial positions um, and potentially those of their children well this is potentially a very difficult area and one that is frequently overlooked it is perhaps understandable during the early stages of a new relationship for couples to put off uh, formalizing their relationship particularly financial matters until a later date if at all this is a big mistake Couples should be thinking about their relationship in terms of a business relationship, however unromantic this may appear. Far too many cohabiting couples end in a breakdown, which often results in acrimony and financial difficulties for one or both parties. It is essential that uh, financial matters are regularised and agreed even before the parties move in together. The obvious first step is for a cohabitation agreement, commonly known as a living together agreement, to be prepared. Uh, this agreement involves important matters, including who owns what from the outset and how savings 
property and personal effects are distributed following separation. It's often said that couples should be thinking about the long-term financial arrangements even at the time of viewing a property. Usually one or both parties will have saved up a substantial deposit to assist with the purchase of the property. Serious consideration should be given as to how the property will be held moving forward. If the property is purchased as joint tenants, then it is deemed that the property will be equally shared between the parties. If the property is purchased as tenants in common, then it is open to the parties to state that the property will be held in unequal shares. This would be appropriate where one party has contributed a larger deposit to the other party. Careful instruction will need to be given to the solicitors acting on the purchase of property to ensure that both parties' positions are protected. Additional financial planning should also be considered around each party's pension provisions. An expression of wish form should be considered to instruct a pension provider to direct where the benefit should go on death. The pension provider ultimately has the discretion to distribute benefits in these circumstances, and it may be a good idea for any couple to secure the benefit of independent uh, financial advice. It goes without saying that any children of a relationship should be carefully considered in any cohabitation agreement where possible. It must be borne in mind, however, that the court could override any agreement that the parties enter into relating to children. The other important matter to consider when contemplating cohabitation is the making of a valid will. A cohabitation agreement will set out the parties' wishes during their lifetime, but a will provides for the parties' wishes in the event of death. This is particularly important where there is property in children. If a party should die intestate, that is, without leaving a will, there are strict rules as to how the estate is distributed. So, Peter, what's involved in preparing a cohabitation agreement? Um, so, for example, what sort of points would it cover and what's needed to ensure that it's valid and enforceable? Well, in many respects, the preparation of a cohabitation agreement, or often known as a living together agreement, should be relatively straightforward. An agreement is essentially a contract between a cohabiting couple that is legally binding. A carefully tailored agreement will help to avoid a contentious relationship breakdown with all the costs that this involves. The agreement should incorporate a number of important issues, including future ownership of the family home, the distribution of any capital assets, payment of debts, and provision as to the responsibility for and financial support of any children of the relationship. The list is uh, by no means exhaustive, however. The starting point for the preparation of a cohabitation agreement is to put together a list of the essential points that you wish to include. The list would be useful as an aid memoir, so as to avoid omitting something important from the agreement. It may be a good idea to have to hand an updated valuation of the family home and all other assets and debts. When drafting the cohabitation agreement, it is important to bear in mind that it should comply with the basic requirements of contract law, which should then in turn be legally enforceable. The essential components to a legally enforceable cohabitation include that the parties agree, understand the nature of the agreement, that neither party has at any stage been placed under duress to sign it, that both parties acknowledge that by signing the agreement it becomes legally enforceable, and that neither party was induced to enter into the agreement on the basis of any form of misrepresentation. It is imperative that both parties should be given the opportunity of securing independent legal advice before actually signing the agreement. 
So in conclusion, a cohabitation agreement will often outline how the cohabitants will live together on a day-to-day -day basis. It may also cover important issues such as the payment of bills, the ownership and occupation rights of the family home, and the ownership of all other assets and payment of liabilities and issues about the financial support of any children. Okay, so I'm just going to move on from there, Peter, and, and look at entering into a second marriage. Um, so not a pretty, a very good romantic question here, but what are the key considerations involved in entering a second marriage? Yes, well, firstly, you need to ensure that you have finalised financial matters with your previous spouse. If matters have not been finalised, then you should settle these by agreement or a court application. And if a court application, this should be dealt with prior to the remarriage. In fact, a remarriage can prevent that party from applying to the court to deal with finances. This is an added complexity in what can already be a trying situation. Secondly, another key consideration is whether you have children separately or intend to have children together and what you would like to leave your children. And thirdly, uh, does a party own other property and is it the intention to share this or will this be ring-fenced? Okay, so focusing again specifically on second marriages here, what options are open to people um, to protect the financial positions and potentially those of their children? A person entering into a second marriage may wish to consider entering into a so-called prenuptial agreement. Whilst uh, no one wants to think about divorce before they have got married, and prenups may be, not be the uh, most romantic of gestures when you're asking someone to marry you, there are couples who will benefit from having one. There may have been a previous acrimonial divorce or there may have been wealth built up prior to this second marriage where one or both parties have children and therefore they want to protect part of this wealth for their own children. So can you explain in more detail what a prenuptial agreement is? And again, a big question, are they legally binding? Uh, yes, a prenuptial agreement is a contract between a couple intending to marry. The agreement will set out the financial consequences of separation. In the absence of having a prenup drawn up in the, and in, in the event of separation, if an agreement cannot be reached on the division of assets and parties can find themselves involved in costly court proceedings, a prenuptial agreement can avoid this. So parties need to carefully consider what to include in a prenup. The starting point is to look at the claims which can be made in divorce proceedings and ensure that those are covered within the terms of a prenup. A court can make orders in respect of properties, lump sums, pension sharing or attachment orders and maintenance. And some of the factors that court will take into account are the income earning capacity of the parties, the financial needs of the parties, the standard of living enjoyed by the family before the breakdown of the marriage, uh, the ages of each spouse and the duration of marriage. These should all be considered when entering into a prenup. Prenups are shedding their stigma and becoming more popular. Historically, prenuptial agreements have had no legal status in England, English law, and this is because they have been considered to be unfair. That is not the case, and a prenup, if entered into correctly, and the agreement is a fair one, will hold an evidential weight with the court. There has been an important landmark case of Bradmacher and Granatina, which was heard by the Supreme Court in 2010. This has changed the way in, prenups, in which prenups are now considered. This established that prenups were now to be given full weight so long as they were entered into by parties freely and with full appreciation of the consequences 
And very importantly, a prenuptial agreement should not be allowed to prejudice the reasonable requirements of any children of the family. So if a child is born within the marriage, then it would be advisable for a prenup to be updated to ensure that the child's needs are met. And the same would apply if there are any changing circumstances. If a prenup is considered to be unfair, a court can overturn the agreement, in which case the division of the assets would be dealt with through financial proceedings within a divorce. So it is extremely important that a prenup provides for the reasonable requirements of the parties. It is sensible for a prenup to be reviewed at agreed periods during the marriage. The length of the marriage can have a bearing upon whether the agreement remains enforceable and regular reviews of this provision can help. Providing certain conditions are met, the court can give the prenuptial agreement decisive or compelling weight. It is important that the agreement is considered not to be manifestly unfair. And just going back on that, Peter, what sort of points would pre and post-nups generally cover? Our prenup would include details of the party's separate property and their joint property and the division of these in the event of a separation. It can also include details of family businesses and whether such an asset should be excluded from the marital assets. Consideration would be given to excluding such assets, for example, if these were pre-acquired wealth of one party. But uh, this once again brings me back to the point of meeting reasonable needs and the importance of having other assets to meet needs before ring-fencing any assets. A prenup can provide for a lump sum to be paid to one party, and this is very often the case when one party has brought less to the marriage than the other party. However, parties' living needs need to be considered first, and what I mean here is that provision does need to be made for that party to find alternative accommodation in the event of a separation. Depending upon the level of assets, a lump sum payment can increase with the length of the marriage, and this is seen as a fair way of dealing with matters. A prenup can include provision of maintenance payments and how pension assets are to be divided. Each and every agreement is different and what is included within an agreement will depend on individual circumstances. This is a complex area of law and it is important that legal advice is taken. So taking that point particularly, what's needed to ensure that they're valid in the eyes of the court? Well, to be considered fair, the agreement must be made following full financial disclosure. Uh, full financial disclosure allows both parties to know what the assets are and whether they are in joint names or in a party's sole name. This will allow the parties to have a full appreciation of the extent of the other's income and assets. Both parties must receive independent legal advice and the agreement must be entered into free from duress or undue influence. It is advisable that the agreement is signed at least 28 days prior to the wedding. If it is not signed in good time, one party could allege that they signed the agreement on the eve of the wedding as they felt pressurised to do so. This can lead to complexities at a later date and may lead to the legitimacy of the agreement to be challenged. Okay, so to kind of finish off, what would be your top tips for people entering second marriages or cohabiting relationships? Well, if you are cohabiting, uh, enter into a cohabitation agreement with your partner. If you purchase a home together, have a declaration of trust drawn up, which reflects how the property is held. And if you marry, consider having a prenuptial agreement. If you are already uh, married again, then there is always a postnuptial agreement. And then um, making a will is important. Uh, and finally, the drafting of all the documents to which I refer can be complicated. So please seek our specialist advice.
Okay, well, th thanks very much, Peter. Um, I think for more information uh, on the topics that we've discussed today um, and details of how to um, contact Peter, please visit the Manda Hadley website at mandahadley.co.uk um, or you can contact Peter directly um, at peterburden at mandahadley.co.uk. Um, so just to finish off, really, Peter, thanks very much um, for the podcast. Very interesting. Uh, and we look forward to our next one. Thank you, Jim.